open the session up for questions that you may have about the profit outcome. Matthew Schaefer. I appreciate your comments. You talked about um, John the Baptist as Elijah. And I, I'm just curious because I've thought about this myself. I have the passage, the exact verse in the top of my head, but I was thinking of when the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John and asked him if he was Elijah the prophet who was to come, and he denied it. Do you have any thoughts on, on how that relates to Malachi's prophecy or how to kind of resolve that since Christ later identified him as Elijah? I've thought that of that very conundrum, and I don't have a good answer. Um, maybe the room will be able to help. <laughs> David Jordan. I'm just trying to understand a question around here. You're asking is Elijah, was John the Baptist Elijah? Is that what you're saying? Or That's what the Lord said. The question, the question is, oh. if I can state it, John chapter 1 verse 21 versus what's stated in Matthew chapter 17. In John chapter 121, the Pharisees asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, no. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus asked or answered the apostles when they said, Why do the scribes and Pharisees say that Elijah must come first? Jesus says he has come. And they understood he meant John the Baptist. That's the question. Right. And, and my answer would be that. The Mount Transfiguration, when James and John, he took them up to the Mount Transfiguration. When they, what they saw, they saw... Moses, they saw Jesus, and they saw Elijah. Right? Right. And so when they saw that, if I was to ask questions spiritually, what, what does that represent? What does Moses represent? What does Elijah represent? And what does Jesus represent? Well, Moses represents the beginning of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, right? He's beginning. Elijah represents the end of the Old Testament. Right? And so then you have Jesus, and then you have this over, you have this cloud that comes and overshadows, and he says, hey, this is my beloved son, who I'm going to please hear him. We're not listening to little Moses anymore. We're not listening. Elijah's already come. He's the end. And now we're listening to the Christ. So in other words, in my understanding of who, when in Matthew 17, as they're coming down from that mountain, and they ask that question, well then, why do the scribes say Elijah must come? He has already come. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to restore the hearts of the people. Now, to take it a step further, if I even ask a question, do you know that John the Baptist even looked like Elijah physically? Not, 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 his, fe not his features, but what he wore. In 2 Kings chapter 1, there was a king that asked, hey, you know, go send for Elijah. And they asked, well, who? He, he was going to send for someone else to go and have a prophecy about you know, hey, am I going to get better or not? And Elijah comes and, and delivers this prophecy to him. Go back to the king. And the king says, have you come back so fast? He said, well, the man came and intercepted me and told me to send these words back to you. And the king said, what did he look like? <laughs> and he said, he was a haired man and wore a leather belt. And he said, it was Elijah the Tishman. And John the Baptist wore a leather belt and camel's hair. But he came in the spirit of Elijah. That's my understanding. 
I think that the prophecy in Malachi refers to John the Baptist as the one, the prophet, the final prophet that would come before the Messiah. Um, and I think that Jesus identifying him as Elijah helps us to understand that fulfillment. I, I, I'm not sure uh, I appreciate what uh, what you brethren have said on that. If I understand right, you, you have to get at the heart of the question. And there was a misconception in the first century. People believed in reincarnation. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Did you want? No. But the whole point is, he was not literally Elijah. Right. 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 People believed in. And you know when. When they asked Jesus in Matthew 16, or Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah. It's because people believed in reincarnation. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus, or asked John, are you Elijah? He knew the intent of their, of their question. He says, no, I'm not. Because they were thinking of reincarnation. And so that's the that's the explanation. There's not a contradiction in John 1:21 and Matthew 17. It's what's the heart of the question? Okay, sorry. Thank you for that clarification, brother. Any other questions here? Right back here. On this, God has divorce. Ezra and Nehemiah commanded the people to put away their foreign wives. Right? Is, is, is that your reference? Yes. Well, yeah, Nehemiah and what was it? We need the microphone. So there, there's several that can't hear. Please. Nehemiah and Ezra? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's right. How important is that to the church today uh, for Christians to use as, as an example to marry within the church. I think it goes back to the idea of a mixed marriage and I don't see any New Testament approval for that. Um, does that answer the question? I'm sorry? Alan Bonifay. Michael, I enjoyed your talk. Uh, thought it was an excellent survey. Interesting. And uh, to support what Richard said a moment ago about this question in John 1, uh, they asked him, uh, Who are you? And he confessed and denied not, I am not the Christ. 
And then they asked, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Then they said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. Uh, this is a further indication of misunderstanding among the Jews in the first century. They were distinguishing the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 as, as separate from the Messiah, whereas they're the same. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding in the first century among the Jews. And that's important to understand in order to understand this discussion right here. Like they said, he's simply saying, I'm not literally Elijah. Thank you. George Batty. Michael, I just wanted to ask if you would elaborate just a little bit more on the passage there in chapter 2 and verse 14 that God hates divorce. And, and the reason I want you to elaborate a little bit more on that is because uh, many brethren who believe there is absolutely no exception for divorce and remarriage for innocent, faithful Christians. If, if you get divorced, God, God hates the whole thing. So he cannot, he cannot ever allow anyone in a divorce to be innocent and to remarry. And I feel like that to just make the statement God hates divorce and to walk away having made that statement without clarifying a little bit because of, of false teaching. Yes, sir. It needs to be clarified that um, God does recognize innocent people who have a right to remarry because their spouse is a guilty fornicator that will not repent. And I think that needs to be, if you would, just elaborate on that. How long do I have? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you, brother. I appreciate you asking that. And um, that's actually one question I feel ready to respond to. Um, God hates divorce. The scriptures are very clear about that. That's not God's plan. God's plan is for one man and one woman to leave husband, uh, mother and father and to be united for life. Um, God hates divorce. But he makes the one exception. In, we see that exception taught in Jesus' teaching. And we see that exception taught in, Mo, in Paul's teaching. Um, I think that one of the reasons that God hates divorce is because of the trauma that takes place in the children's life following divorce. The trauma that takes place within society. And I think we're just now beginning to understand what the divorce rate, the high divorce rates have caused in our society. Uh, many of you know my wife is a, a psych nurse and most of the people that she deals with with serious and critical issues are coming from a, from a broken home. Uh, there's really nothing good about a divorce situation except that Jesus made the exception. And because of that exception, I think that a person, it means that a person who is united with a fornicator does not have to continue living with that fornicator. Jesus made the exception. I didn't. We didn't. And our brethren who uh, support the no exception position 
have, in my experience, often accused us of being for divorce. That's not true. We're not for divorce. We're for the exception because that's what Jesus taught. And because of that, that's where we stand. However, I do think that for those of us who are teachers, and I think that may be most of the men here, we don't teach on divorce often enough. And I think that is hurting us. And that's something that I am going to be remedying in my own work very soon. I think that we need to teach on it more, more, more than what we do. I've been in the church now for almost 20 years, and I've never heard a sermon on divorce. I've heard it mentioned, but I've never heard, heard a full sermon. I used to think that there was not enough information in the scriptures to really develop a full sermon on it. And boy, was I wrong. There's plenty. Here in um, the end of chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and you covered a lot on the prophecy where you have part of here, the um, <coughs> prophecy of Elijah, which would be the coming of John the Baptist. And the first four, it says, um, remember the law of Moses, goes into a lot of detail there. Where this came up in my study, I was looking at um, Daniel chapter 11 and prophecies of the time period between the close of the Old Testament and the New. Um, is this, um, the way I took it, and tell me um, whether I was right on this and what your thoughts are on it, is this was kind of a closing comment of the prophets, kind of the end of the prophets to the Jews, is here's what you do. There will not be prophets coming for a while, but you remember the law and you look for the prophet that is coming before the Messiah. And um, in looking at some of the writings and questions of like, are Maccabees inspired and things, First Maccabees several times says there is no, was no prophet. It seemed like at least some of the Jews in that time period had that expectation of we don't have a prophet now, we need to look back at the law and we need to look forward to the coming prophet before the Messiah. Is it correct to take that verse or that passage as kind of setting the framework of what the Jews were supposed to be expecting in that time of the twofold, looking to the law and following it, and looking for the prophet? Based on my study, I don't, I don't have an a issue with that at all. I think that Scripture can uh, serve a dual purpose. And here Malachi seems to be calling the people to repentance in remembering, remembering the law, remember where you have fallen short and what you need to do to make things right. But in going forward, certainly they need to remember it and teach to teach it to their children and their children's children, uh, so that they can preserve whatever they can preserve. Of uh, Judah's tendency was was not to follow the law of God. Judah's tendency, Israel's tendency as a whole, was to stray. Um, and this certainly could be an admonition to them for succeeding generations. Do you have any closing comments, Mike? Um, thank you, brethren, for hosting this meeting. I, I enjoyed the study. It was uh, challenging. I knew that it was going to be, but it was more challenging than I expected. And to be honest with you, I feel like I left a lot of meat on the bone. So... Thank you. Well, in fairness, you had a very broad topic. You asked me what to say about Malachi, and I said, say what you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. <laughs>